Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection Podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark, two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you. Write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. All right. Well, welcome back, uh, friends of the podcast. We have advanced two whole years since the last time you saw us play GoldenEye. And today, we are talking about one of our favorite films in the last of the 20th century. We're talking about The Mummy today. Mark, how how do you recall or, or look back upon this film? Well, I look back fondly, although... Joe, I do have a story that goes along with this film. Ooh, please tell. So, at one point in time, I was a young man, you know, before I became this withered and, you know, t- tormented soul you see before you yes. mm-hmm. week after week. And when The Mummy first came out, I thought to myself, you know what? You're an enterprising young man. Mm-hmm. Why not try to get some ladies to go visit this film with you? And it was actually kind of funny how this worked out. I asked two girls from my class to go see this movie with me and a friend. Mm-hmm. And suddenly rumors began that Ooh. that I had a crush on either one or both of these girls that, <laughs> that I asked to go to this movie. Believe it or not, I wasn't out for anything other than friendship. I just mm-hmm. invited them along. I thought it would be a fun idea. And I was uh, tormented for several weeks because of it. <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, if, "Hey, are, whew, are you a fan? Uh, do, you, do you like Stephanie? Are you a big fan of Stephanie? Do you want to ask <laughs> Stephanie out?" It's like, no, Stephanie and Jenny—they were just two girls I asked to go see a movie with. There was nothing implied. Oh, if there was, that—that that is quite the flex. Like, imagine, like, I'm torn between these two ladies. I think I'll bring both of them to the movie. And what movie, you may ask? The Mummy. This makes sense. This is perfect. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't work out for either one of those two ladies and, and myself. We it, mm-hmm. it was just friendship. That's all I was looking for. I just wanted to go to a movie with a bunch of people, have a good time. Mm-hmm. But no, 1999 was was very relentless. <laughs> it was it was tough <laughs> on a young guy like me. So yeah, that was that was kind of rough. I was 13 mm-hmm. years old, but you know, you just you just pack just. Pack that down. You, you pack, pack it, it down. down. And then you, you yeah. forget it ever happened until you form a podcast several, several decades later to to bring that back up. So, uh, yeah, that that is not where I thought you would go with that direction over over your, your thoughts about this movie or your memories <laughs> of this movie. But I'm glad we went there nonetheless, because <sighs> this is something that had a bit of a recent like i don't want to say full-on renaissance because there is the brendan uh, the brendan that's going around right now but the renaissance yes the renaissance 
But uh, even before that, I would say, think like even last year when we did an episode entirely on shitposting. Uh, the Mummy was actually one of the shitposting sites that kind of inspired us to even talk about that, because this is just a movie that had so many, for better or worse, memeable moments through it, uh, yeah. that it was just very, very memorable because of some very standout scenes. And even, I, even like its sequels get some pretty memeable moments out of it. But it's definitely one for whether it is the memes or the memories has stuck in the mind of these two podcasters. And I think plenty of people who can look fondly back upon this because this is unrelated to both the original mummy that came out in the, what, the 1930s or 40s? 1932. That's the one, 1930s. Uh, and the one that came out with Tom Cruise later. While all owned by Universal. Yes. Sorry, so, I'm just using voices tonight. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I like it. I like it. I mean, <laughs> if actually at some point in time you could uh, actually be very upset with me for not respecting the sacred of the old uh, and the timeline of the new, because I feel like that is what gets a lot of people into trouble in The Mummy, is as always there's someone who disrespects the history and doesn't understand what's going on and they awaken the bad. And I feel like that that is what I've just done by not remembering the proper decade of of the original it's it's okay that's why i'm mm -hmm. here joe you and i have talked about this before you know my, my memory tends mm -hmm. to be pretty good and it's really useful in a spousal argument but tonight mm -hmm. it's being used for the good of, of movies discussion <laughs> and mm -hmm. for this movie let's talk about some really quick facts on this one okay now compared to to dread the 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 grosses were not too low for the money, actually. Mm -mm. Uh, it, it did quite well in the box office. It pulled in $416.4 million in 1999. Ooh. And how much, how so, much did it cost yeah. to make this ditty of a movie? Oh, it cost $80 million. That, that is, that is what you call a, a stage three success. Because there was plan one, make movie. Part one, make movie. Part two... Part three was purely profit here, and it succeeded very, very much. Because, yeah, holy crap, an $80 million budget and a $416.4 million like, box office, that's, that's massive. I mean, it, you know, I, I'd almost, I was going to say like it goes to show like how it's sad, like even thinking like the originality of Hollywood is gone because this was a hit. But even then, <laughs> this is technically a reboot too. So here we are, mad over reboots, and this one kicked some some serious buttocks uh in the box office i mean it it did a damn good job seemingly coming out of nowhere because you know mm -hmm. when I, we talked about this in the van helsing episode these traditional horror films kind of stayed dormant for you know quite mm -hmm. some time even though we got at times maybe some like straight to dvd films or made for tv movies that kind of thing mm -hmm. but yeah this is the first time that one of the classic universal horror you know genre icons came back and kind of blew the blew the doors yeah. off of things mm -hmm. but yeah you know here's here's the thing joe you and i have have once talked about the power of inflation which for those of yes. you that are <laughs> thinking about it today yeah mm -hmm. we're not talking about today as it is very painful indeed mm -hmm. but as far as earnings go Joe, when we adjust for inflation, as we used to very early mm -hmm. on in this this program's history, mm -hmm. which some people thought was just really nerdy of us, but yeah. 
cheerio we're going to do it again mm-hmm. in 2022 dollars this film would have brought in 744 million one hundred thirty five thousand six hundred six dollars 24 cents stonks ladies and gentlemen that's what that says right there that's it's it's, be, it's, shit, a, it's a dead that's, huge. that's that's a deadpool one right there <laughs> mm-hmm. seriously that's what the mummy did in terms of buying power was essentially the same amount that deadpool one raked in i'd say it's pretty good i do too i mean which is like i don't want to say surprising but if you look if you look at like the ratings that this movie got though for its time uh you look at imdb rating gives it a 7.1 out of 10 not bad it's a 71 percent that's respectable but not great by any means and a 61 percent on rotten tomatoes if you care to uh, go with their ratings but if you were to go for the film critics of the time of the movie, since neither of those two were really doing anything at the time, you had Roger Ebert of the Siskel and Ebert duo gave this three stars. And he said it was a preposterous film, but he couldn't stop loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me just makes me question the integrity of the five-star system. <laughs> Because shouldn't mm-hmm. shouldn't we weight this based on how much we we enjoyed it? And I have to say that I agree with what was said, mm-hmm. but I think it deserves more than three stars. You know, it, mm-hmm. uh, I just feel like it deserves better than that because it is ridiculous. But when you kind mm-hmm. of push it through the lens of the, the swashbuckling movies of old and mm-hmm. and combining some of those action adventure elements. I don't really think anything is too crazy uh, in this movie, even even in 1999 terms. I mean, no, I, and, yeah, and I think maybe that's that's maybe where, where Ebert is coming from on this is that really it doesn't do anything new as far as like the swashbuckling genre does go. It actually plays a lot on just like the things that all of those movies do and do well, and it's like, hey, this is kind of a swashbuckling greatest hits album that we're making into a movie for you. And because of that, it kind of purposely plays on all the things that you know you're that that the filmmakers know you're going to like. And I think maybe Ebert may have thought that that was almost cheapened in some way and that like it's not doing anything new for the genre. Um it's not like advancing it in any way shape or form. It's just doing what we love so we can't help but love it. <laughs> sort of thing. It- Really, I don't think it's any mm-hmm. different than what an initial Indiana Jones did for for that same genre, right? It, it's mm-hmm. I don't think it's so much that we're getting introduced to something that we don't quite understand. I think for most people, it's just something you'd never exposed to because you didn't live during the fifties yeah. and or the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. You didn't know the serials that influenced these kinds of films to be made, and and so I think that's really what it is. It's people seeing this for the first time. And thinking it's brand new when really it's not, this is not that new of an idea. It's, I mean, clearly it's a reboot, like you mentioned from the 1930s. So I think that's what it is. I think you're just seeing something you're not used to. And back before we rebooted everything every four years, it still felt fresh. It worked. Yeah. And I I guess that that is part of the thing. Cause you know, they rebooted like an idea that this time was over 30 years old. They didn't wait. um, Like, okay, you know, it's been, like you said, four years, you could probably have at this again and see if it works. Uh, and because of that, it felt fresh to audiences who had never seen this before because 
looking at this, I'm trying to even think of like the other like classic universal monsters that maybe would have gotten something relatively um, around this time. Um, you probably have what Wolf with Jack Nicholson came out around this time, maybe a few years before. But even th- like that, that worked, and that was supposed to be more of a more of a serious drama. Dracula, I don't think got anything but a serious attempt around the 90s. I think he came in the 2000s more because of how successful this was. Uh, Frankenstein hadn't been touched in forever. The Creature from the Black Lagoon hadn't been touched in forever. Um, if anything, with those guys, what, maybe since, like, what? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Monster Squad in the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. And that's, that, mm-hmm. that's the thing. You did see some of this stuff pop up in the 80s, but not as, like, an original mm-hmm. influence from from these films like they were somewhat original ideas that that pulled you know similar subject matter like teen wolf yeah. for example mm-hmm. or you know like uh, dracula dead and loving it or mm-hmm. you know uh any of those types of things like interview with a vampire like you get different you get different takes on these characters but not trying to reboot what that character did back in the 30s 40s and 50s yeah so mm-hmm. it's it's uh it's it's i'll put it this way when i heard the mummy coming out like I told you before, I read some of the books of old, <laughs> the sacred texts. <laughs> and so I, I, I was familiar with the stories because, yeah, mm-hmm. I grew up on them. Yeah. But when, when this one came out, for some reason, it didn't really register with me that this was a reboot. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, as I aged, I did look into the background of how this came to be. <laughs> and th- this, this is a, a property, Joe. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe just how much it got molded and shifted and and changed because the version that we ended up getting it had basically been sitting in universal as this you know this concept for the better part of like six or seven years Ooh, yeah it kept getting bounced around yeah Mm -hmm. it did it so (laughs) it was originally conceived as like a a b grade horror movie okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so Universal Studios did this thing where they're like, okay, tell you what, we're interested in pumping some life into this, this mummy concept, but we don't want to spend a lot of money. No one likes doing that. (laughs) No, no. no. Some Mm -mm. guy in a boardroom just said, hey, uh, get that zombie guy in here. You know, Mm -hmm. what's his name? George, Georgia Romero, George A. Romero. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get get that dude in here. Getting okay, Night of Dead in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get purple zombies and like you know weird shit in here. Let's talk it through. But seriously, they got Georgie e. Romero. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to come in and you know do his little spirit fingers over a script and try to get something going. Yeah, did not work out. They just it just didn't happen. <laughs> they they were going like, yeah, you know what? I think I think even we know that we made a mistake. This- yeah, like the little money we want to spend on this, we know we won't make back with what what what, what was just brought to our attention here. So we're gonna gonna have to pass and mothball this one once again. Yeah, it was basically the equivalent mm-hmm. of like taking a brand new roll of toilet paper and putting part of it into the toilet and then just flushing it and watching it all go to waste. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's the same the same idea. And, and honestly, mm-hmm. I love George A. Romero. Do not get me mm-hmm. wrong. Yeah. But at, at that point in time, we're talking mid nineties, you know, he's coming off of his original works. Mm-hmm. I, I would say horror is not exactly at like an all time high or anything. Mm-mm. You know, that kind of concept might've worked a little bit later. Yeah. Didn't happen here. No. So, and I think the reason why it didn't work 
because at this point in time, Universal wanted the mummy story to actually take place in like modern day and, and not in the past. Mm -hmm. So they wanted this That's like a gamble. <laughs> yeah, they want they want they wanted a, a Terminator version of the mummy to exist in the in the modern day. That's basically what it whittles down to. Oh, but covered boy. in bandages, of course. Oh, of course, yes. Still um, going after a specific person for probably a really dumb, contrived reason. Um, not not to hit the Terminator. Like the Terminator story made sense. That was perfect. Um, but like, it just this is something where this one I don't, I don't like. It would it had to be it would have to be perfect to work. And I think that's if anything that's what the Universal monsters like have shown us is that they need to be the right story at the right time and the monsters need to be allowed to be monstrous. Otherwise they don't work. Um, yeah. Because yeah. that's what we saw. Like it worked in the thirties. It worked here. It didn't work in 2017 uh, where we tried doing, you know, a modern in modern times version of it. And it tried doing its own weird thing and it just did not didn't pan out. It didn't work right. So, that's why, like I say, like making fun of the whole, like, oh, what sort of dumb contrived reason, like, honestly, like all of these, all these movies, like, I feel like if they bring a director in, like the first thing the director is going to say, sitting down at a table is like, hey, guys, we got one shot at this. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a long shot. It's, it's probably not going to work. And it has to be like the perfectly kind of dumb yet believable reason. And they kind of make that, that's, that's how this movie works. Um, is I, yeah. and I don't want to say the reason isn't entirely dumb as far as like, as far as this goes, honestly, it, it does something that we, you said like back when we talked about Batman, the animated series, which rest in peace, Kevin Conroy. Um, oh yes. Right. We've got the recently. Oh. Um, always too soon for a lot of our favorites. But anyway, when we talked about how, in that series, they made sure that the villains always had a reason for why they were doing what they're doing, that we can see that they were people before they were the villain. Mm -hmm. We kind of get to do that with our mummy in this movie. Whereas in like the 2017 one, it's like, who gives a shit about that reason? That didn't work. See, now that's a very important factor in this because Universal, I think, did actually learn through all these revisions, okay? They they did actually deny some ideas, and they didn't pull the trigger on every single thing that came their way. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the ideas that came out of this like five six year idea mining process, at one point it was proposed to have Daniel Day Lewis be the mummy. Which... I mean, <laughs> why not have Abraham Lincoln mummy? Um, I think that'd be great. Because <laughs> yeah. okay, this is even wait, this is is this before Gangs of New York too? Uh, this is before Gangs of New York, yeah. Okay, so yeah. all right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean, could you imagine? Because isn't isn't he famously like a method actor where he stays in oh, character? Yeah. So could oh, you yeah. imagine him just like not? He just doesn't stop being. Yeah, like, <laughs> I mean, imagine the producers. They, they're like, what? like a, a, a PA walks up to the director and goes, "Hey, uh." So Mr. Lewis would like to remove his organs and put them in canopic jars. And he would like to separate the areas of his soul. Are we willing to do that? <laughs> what? Mr. Lewis, we're getting, we're getting something big from the producers here. And I got to say, big fan. I support this 100%. <laughs> 
but the guys up top they're just saying no (laughs) (laughs) and that's and that's when he says i'm the high priestess of the pharaoh clothed in immense bandages (laughs) yeah that would be great oh Oh my god God. you know what I, I surprisingly, I'm not upset about that idea. That could have no, been good. Sign me up. Yeah. I'll watch that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of the reason why is because really, when you look at it, 90% of horror movies are shit. Let's be honest. They're not great. Yeah. It, it's a yeah. rough genre. And when, if you doubt me on that, okay, look at the best horror movies out there. You've got like Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. How many movies are in those three like series yeah. by themselves? And yeah. how many in each series are actually good? Yeah. One, maybe two, maybe two. That's that's pushing it, to be honest. And then yeah. after that, even look at like Alien. Alien's great. Aliens is great. But Aliens isn't even a horror movie. It's an action movie. Alien yeah. 3 tries to go horror. Sucked. Every Alien movie since Alien Aliens, honestly, not great. <laughs> so Yeah. Even they're Predator just, they're so hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even Predator screwed up quite a bit. I mean, <sighs> Pre- oh, Predator, Predator one, yeah, Predator is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Prey is, is is a solid film, which it we're is. not talking about mm-hmm. that today. But no. I, you, your your point is is well received. I think mm-hmm. that that I think horror worked for some movies because of the campiness and not because of the actual mm-hmm. you know all out scare your you know piss yeah. your pants scared type of thing. Mm-hmm. And and the movies that did tend to do that, I don't think attract the same people. No. So Mm-mm. that's that's why I think the balance is important here. Like you're trying to make something that is rooted in what was scary for the time, right? Mm-hmm. But could be viewed as campy now. And yeah, that's a, that's yeah. A, that's not easy to balance at all. No, no, not at all. And especially when again your source material came out in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very hard to make something from that era scary. A little bit changed. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. Mm-hmm. A little tiny yeah. bit. But hey, through this process, though, mm-hmm. we ended up getting the flesh-eating scarabs that show up uh-huh. in the movie. Mm-hmm. We, we ended up getting this like romance story, okay, Ooh. that, that kind of got mm-hmm. folded into it. And yep. then the idea of past lives and kind of encroaching on the, the present, which mm-hmm. didn't really happen in one, but does come through in part two. two. Yes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Universal, Joe, they... They were on the ropes. They were desperate. Okay, they had just. They they, tell me. I want to know how they got desperate because, like, they had Jurassic Park six years before this movie, and that was brilliant. How did you fuck up so bad after Jurassic Park? Because they failed. Because a talking pig could not garner the box office that they needed. Yeah, pigs in the city just didn't work. No, and again, another gamble: talking animals. That's up in the air, guys. That's tough, (laughs) especially if. If another studio already had a talking pig, you're probably not going to get another talking pig to work. They tried. Mm-mm. It did not work out. No. They, they were they were seriously desperate for something to, to work out. And, mm-hmm. hey, guess what? That's when our friend Stephen Summers shows up with a suitcase full of horror-based ideas. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they, 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 they start listening to this dude because he started talking about some of the things that they had wanted to start doing that they hadn't really shared with people. So just think about like how, you know, like the police don't release everything about a murder that just happened because they want to mm-hmm. catch the killer. Yes. Well, Steven Summers did this except without murdering anybody and just having good ideas. And Universal's like, this guy is thinking what we're thinking without mm-hmm. us telling him. Which, Same page. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could be viewed as a yes man to some people, but others are thinking, 
I want to spend tens of millions of dollars with this guy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I think I think that was a good idea. But here's here's the part, Joe, that you kind of alluded to before. Mm-hmm. When it came to this movie, clearly ideas were being milled for quite a while. And I think Stephen Summers understood what the undertaking was to make mm-hmm. sure they got it right. And I, I'm still kind of surprised that he spent like a ton of time with a U, uh, UCLA professor just to nail the language of the Egyptians. I mean, this is also again, like the, the, the cool Hollywood shit that goes on like every once in a while still. Um, just again, like when people actually take time to care about a movie, to make sure that it's done right, really, really helps. And again, like, Something like this, like again, taking a a sixty plus year old idea, trying to reboot it, reboot it, and actually, you know, caring about like the source material to some degree, which yeah. then, like, for some reason, like when you look at like again, like superheroes coming up, and how like people can stray from like the source material so quickly, and those stories aren't nearly as old as the <laughs> ones that were done here. It's like, wow, really? Superman's a dick now? That's weird. Um, but sure, we'll go <laughs> that route. And it's illustrated. They did yeah. all the work for you. There's nothing to they interpret. <laughs> it's like it's it's literally storyboarded for you right there. Yeah. You can't screw it up, and yet you did. Good job. But anyway, so again, like the idea that he he did this, and I think what the screenplay itself is movie took what a year? Um, it, it was not hastily put together. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It took at least a year for him to get ideas to the page and then making sure that it, it fit what the, yeah, what universal was looking for. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that already tells me that, yeah, somebody gave a shit about this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's the opposite of like my favorite, uh, God, I think it may have been some sort of candy bar commercial or something. Uh, that was making fun of it. It came out around the same time. It was right after like Godzilla '98 came out. Oh god! And which we should probably do that movie at some point in time and all of its horrendousness. <laughs> but it was basically they had like an idea for a giant monster movie, and then they spent so much time and all these ideas of what they could do to promote the movie. And they're talking about toy sales, weird slime stuff. They've got this epic poster. They've got tie-ins with restaurant deals and all this stuff. And then right before the commercial, at the end, they're like. So we've got a script for this thing, right? And someone at the table says, "No, not yet. We could we could probably bang one out by Friday." <laughs> yeah, that's that's what so many of 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 movies feel like sometimes. It's like, yeah, you guys like if you put time into this, we couldn't tell. Um, yeah, and that is that's at least uh, different about this movie is that while you can look back on it now, and some some of it does not hold up, we'll get to that later. But the part that really does hold up is how fun the movie is. Like you do get swept up in the story because it has, it has plenty of tropes in it, but they're the tropes that are familiar, predictable, but not predictable to the point where you kind of want to gag on them. (laughs) They're predictable, but fun. And that's, I think because of the care put into it, they didn't get the tropes to the gagging like portion of it. It was like, no, like, we're going to do this, but we're going to ease off a little bit and not go too hard into it so you get sick of the movie while you're watching it. And you know what? Here's here's where I think they made some good decisions because when you talk about hastily throwing things together, 
Well, initially they were thinking of having like Tom Cruise, Matt Damon, Oof. Ben Affleck, Brad Pitt. I'm assuming Damon and Affleck were a package deal at this point too. Like you get Damon, <laughs> Affleck's just going to be there. Damon's mummy, Affleck's O'Connell. Or um, they just both play O'Connell and they switch between scenes and when they, and they never tell you when. I would be fine with that. I'd watch that goddamn movie. I don't care. <laughs> we get 90s Affleck Damon tag team back. I'm in. Sold. Yeah, that would be horrendous. <laughs> but yeah, I but mean, that, if there's even a scene yeah. where like they they end the mummy and they they do the like the last little thing, and then it's Affleck at first, says it says Apple, and it's a quick like jump cut, oh. and it's now now Aff now it's Damon saying sauce. Yeah, yeah. Nope, nope. I'm so, like, who's not going to love that? Everyone's going to love that, except for the people who haven't seen Goodwill Hunting. They'll be very lost I, on it. And yeah, mm -hmm. they'd have to rename it to the Mummy, eh? You know, like like Boston style, <laughs> Boston. Yeah, the yeah. Mummy. Eh? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, Amitabh, how's your mother doing? Huh? Okay. Yeah. We have we have them be terribly American, and then instead we make the three Americans really British, and they just they, they give them shit the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I, you know what I, I I thought that when I read through that, I was like thinking, I think if you replace Brendan Fraser with any of those guys at this time, mm -hmm. I don't think they could pull off mm -mm. the 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 balance of this. The no. being slightly comedic at times, but but still being serious and and not making it too dark. You know, like he mm -hmm. like Brendan Fraser did a really good job with the the concept of you know O'Connell and yeah. Rick O'Connell and mm -hmm. I mean it's it's hard to quantify I think like he just I don't know he, yeah. he embraced Swashbuckler he did and I think again like because clearly like we know how this worked with Tom Cruise and I think if we would have had him in this movie it would not have been obviously the story would have been different than what we got in 2017 but the feel would have been the same because as we've said before when you get Tom Cruise for a movie it's a Tom Cruise movie and yeah. If you're in the mood for a Tom Cruise movie, it's fucking phenomenal. The guy, again, like, I'm not ever going to give him shit because, again, like, he literally strapped himself to a fucking airplane that took off into the sky and they filmed it and they used it in the movie. Like, yeah. the ball's on the guy. Like, he, he really does everything he can to make the movie enjoyable. But, again, like, when Tom Cruise is there, like, it's going to be a very similar movie to other Tom Cruise movies because that's kind of why they picked him in the first place. Um, so if you're in the mood for a Tom Cruise movie, they're going to be fun, but you're not always in the mood for a Tom Cruise movie. It's got to be something different every once in a while. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is, it's important that I think Frazier's in that role because mm -hmm. he doesn't steal the entire movie mm -mm. and, and it's not all about him. That That's what I think is the, the important part here is that, yeah, you have him as like the main character, quote unquote. But then, mm -hmm. then you have the guy that everyone mistakes for Billy Zane, who's actually named Arnold Vosloo. Mm -hmm. And he, when he's brought into cast for this movie, he tells them, "My vision for Imhotep is to deliver this role, straight laced, mm -hmm. serious, and 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 nothing else. Yeah. Like I I need to counterbalance anything." The other people are trying to do mm -hmm. that's either comedic or human mm -hmm. right yeah so that was the contrast i thought that was like brutally important for this movie is that he's a villain he's out of his mm -hmm. own time but he's he, he's really like terrifying to, to look at you know yes and again that's that's what's so important again is that 
we get a villain who's not a villain for the sake of being a villain. Like you, like yeah. we, we alluded to before, he does have this background story, which is in, in this case, it's a romance, which is also kind of like, you know, a fun switch is instead of focusing on the romance of the hero of the film, that is actually mirrored with the villain, kind of showing that they do have something in common with each other. And then you have him doing anything he can to get that back. So we have a villain that is relatable, but also at no point ever, and this is also what makes it a really good fucking movie, justified. At no point do you feel like Imhotep is doing the right thing because his girlfriend was taken away from him. It is no, that's why he's doing this. Still an asshole, and he needs to be stopped. So this this is not, I don't consider this spoiler territory. It's been 23 mm-hmm. years. Go watch the movie. <laughs> but uh, Vosloo's character obviously plays you know, Lord Imhotep, the priest of the pharaoh, and he falls in love with the pharaoh's daughter, which is just, just not... It's not good. You can't do that. Yeah, there, it's just mm-hmm. he's just he's outplaying his coverage or whatever that's called. I think that's what it is. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. for that reason, yeah, there people kind of die, things kind of happen, mm-hmm. and so he's cursed to be in the underworld until someone releases him. And this is one of those things, Joe, that I love to talk about because it's it's one of those things that no one should ever really debate. But for mm-hmm. fuck's sake, I gotta I gotta debate this one. The Humdai, which is the curse that they put on Lord Imhotep for his transgressions, yes. it makes absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. like, like you're gonna curse this guy for ki- helping kill the pharaoh. Okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. But why do you give him like every cheat code possible I in the manual if he mm-hmm. gets released? Yep. Like, what's what's the point of that? Yeah, and also it's the whole idea that it was it was so dark and terrible that they never wanted to put it on anyone. Well. I don't think that's the reason why I don't put anyone again. You're giving him superpowers. Like Imhotep was never that strong or that powerful in his life. No. Why would you like, is like, I guess maybe is that never explained? Like is, is what he's experiencing in the afterlife so heinous and horrible that this is the balance for that, that should he ever be brought back, he gets all of this. Is he tortured that much? Is his spirit being picked apart and then re put back together and picked apart again? in a different manner, like what's going on that justifies him having this much power when he comes back. I'm lost well, on okay. it too. So mm-hmm. there, there is, there is part of this that makes some sense to me. If you look back on your ancient Egyptian research or mm-hmm. look at the culture, whatever. Yes. I have that book on my shelf. Okay. And with the whatever <laughs> on the end, I hope they kept that mm-hmm. full title. Well, there's, there's this concept of like, the the soul being more than one thing right like you have the ka and the ba and you have like the part of you that is your personality and then you have the part of you that's like your spiritual form your essence right mm-hmm. and katra. well this is this is the, what the egyptians believed and so when you think mm-hmm. about the curse and what what they did to imhotep it's like yeah you're punishing not only his his human side you're punishing mm-hmm. his spiritual as, as well with what they did to him because they they didn't bury him in the traditional way. And even when no. they discover his 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 body later on, they're like, "You done fucked up, Imhotep." Yeah, <laughs> you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ain't <laughs> never seen no mummy like this. Mm-mm. Yeah, they still supposed to be. Mm-mm. You know, what was they say gooey or moist or juicy? Whatever it was. I think juicy. Yeah, it's juicy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like ah, oh, yeah. ooh. It's like, yeah, that's. <laughs> 
that's just not appetizing mm-hmm. at all. No, yeah. no. Mm-mm. Yeah. So the idea of what they did to him, yeah, sounds mm-hmm. pretty shitty if you're basing it just off of Egyptian lore. But if you're if you're basing it off of just the realm of the movie itself, which once again, I do feel like they paid attention to this. Mm-hmm. Like they, they just oh, yeah. had to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking yeah. of paying attention to things is as we transition to other characters in the movie, because not only do we get um, Frazier and Voslu uh, in this who do great jobs, but really our co-main protagonist is played by Rachel Wise, who plays Evelyn or Evie, who yeah. is named after the Lord who opened the tomb of Tutankhamun. Yeah. So that's a pretty fun thing that they added in. And even looking at the character of Evie, Evie is a fun character. Um, she is very much a scholar who is always trying to keep up with the Bembridge boys. Um, oh, yeah. Which, if you're unaware, Bembridge Scholars was not like a throwaway thing. That was an actual college that was in the Isle of, I think, was the Isle of Wales? I mean, you're probably right. I, I don't okay. actually know where that one's located. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, believe it or not. It was, it was a college that lasted until... No, because it went through World War II. It got ended up being used as a fort for a while, and the boys got moved out because it was an all-boys college, um, which also kind of a fun theme that she's competing against them. And then when we get, get to, like, the, the Egyptian scholar in the movie with his, his shitty line that he throws at Evie. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was an actual school, and I think it only made it, like, 75 years, and then I think it got sold off and then it was done. But hmm. it was a school that was known for being ahead of its time, in that it was studying uh, things that were not actually in like the modern like uh, United Kingdom curriculum, so things like American history and modern languages, which is weird <laughs> that also that uh, you know this language would be something that the Bembridge boys were so concerned with. But anyway, um, Evie is able to read hieroglyphics. She can speak and read ancient Egyptian. She is very, very much uh, brilliant and qualified, but also clumsy and a little and lacking a bit in self-confidence. So she does have her flaws kind of like, um, I don't know, I feel like that's in itself kind of a trope of a lot of female characters in movies at this time. Uh, yeah. if they, while they have some really good, notable, really good notable things, they always have something that makes them need the male protagonist in the movie. So we get this from Evie in that she is very well educated, she's very capable, but she just she needs her big strong man every once in a while. And not yeah. that she would ever not they ever they never like allude to that heavily, but obviously like she gets she willingly goes with the villain at some point in time and it's up to Rick to save her. Um but everything before that, Evie handles herself really well in this movie where she actually saves Rick at one point in time from impending doom. She is yeah. more than willing to fight for herself. Uh, so she actually see her quickly, like learn and overcome a lot of those shortcomings that she has right there. Uh, and she has a brother in this movie who does not share her same sense of love of Egyptian culture and history as she really does. That comes through in this movie. He kind of has it, but he uses it much more for a dodge or a hustle to find a trick. And this is John Hanna, who is bought in uh, for a comedic uh, relief sort of role, which he did not think he was the right person for. No, he I, he was quoted as saying something like, I don't know why they want me here. 
when he when he got when he got the role. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, you don't think you have any comedy chops. It's like, did you see yourself on camera at all for yeah. like the last ten minutes, man? It's like, mm-hmm. good lord, he he was fantastic in this role. And yeah. and and to your point about that balance between Evie being like the truly the scholar mm-hmm. and her brother just being kind of like Han Solo for for the better better part of the movie, <laughs> but mm-hmm. a lot dumber. What I thought was cool about them, though, and mm-hmm. this is also playing into the Tutankhamun uh, side of like real life history, mm-hmm. like there was like this unofficial curse that happened for the people who opened the tomb because they died in mysterious circumstances, heart attacks, mm-hmm. all that kind of weird stuff. And so it makes sense to me that like if their parents were based off of the uh, Carnivron family, like the Lord Carnivron who helped open this thing, mm-hmm. if if they were based off of that, like I wonder if they're playing into it. Did did his like did that family yeah. also? die because of like a curse right mm-hmm. so yeah it, it was it was it was uh yeah they were tickling the ivory from a you know a sense of referencing mm-hmm. other things i thought they did a good job there i do too and again when when looking at their characters that having that backstory is brilliant and like to your to your to your uh comment on like john hannah not realizing he's got comedic chops like the scene alone where uh eventually there is a bunch of mentally enslaved people uh, under Imhotep's power <laughs> yeah. and there's going around in the typical like zombie fashion yeah. and, and yeah. John's character is running to go get the car and he bumps into a lot of them and he sees what they're doing they're kind of riding and getting ready to go so he just stops gets really stiff and turns and just going starts going <laughs> and they just join him <laughs> yeah. like, come on yeah. that was yeah. perfect <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah i mean mm-hmm. he he seemed like he was having fun oh yeah that whole movie and i, I mm-hmm. appreciate him for what he did because i didn't know much about him up to that point i mm-hmm. was not familiar with him everybody else in the cast i kind of had some exposure to well oh, not yeah. arnold, arnold vosloo because i think mm-hmm. i only saw him like one movie but yeah i, I thought that was really well done and Here's what I think is interesting so far. We haven't actually talked about the pacing of this movie yeah. or, mm-hmm. or, or even, uh, even one of the biggest uh, plot pieces of this movie, which involve uh, the, the city, the lost city of Hamanoptera. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what this is kind of centered around is this idea that Hamanoptera is, is where, you know, uh, the, all these people in this movie are trying to find, locate, pillage you know find all these lost treasures that the the desert took back and there's a lot of exposition dedicated to it in the beginning of the movie Mm -hmm. like as we as we hear about you know lord imhotep and what he did and all that good stuff i feel like in other movies they waste that kind of exposition where i feel like in the mummy everything they talk about that sets up hominoptera imhotep and all that stuff it's not really wasted at all like it's it it does get you to the point mm-hmm. and and that leads you you know directly into like the folks that are protecting Hamanatra. Mm-hmm. you know this is where we uh this is where we find the the gigolo from Deuce Bigelow male <laughs> gigolo a dead fair <laughs> oh <laughs> and, my gosh mm-hmm. which he is actually one of the references that goes back to the thir- 1932 film so he plays the role of Ardeth Bay which mm-hmm. is what the alter ego of the original mummy was. Ah. So it's, it's an anagram of death mm-hmm. by Ra, the sun god Ra. And so that's what Ardeth Bay stands for. Mm-hmm. And that's what Imhotep went by in the original film. So I thought that was interesting. I kind of tilted my head a little bit because I go, 
Huh. I know that name. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you say that name? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, but on top of that, way better than Batman vs. Superman's Martha line. But um, <laughs> I'm going to take a small, small break right here because it would be completely like against my character to not bring up how much Nathan Drake owes to Rick O'Connell and the mummy. When you look oh. at this, like look at like look at what Drake wears at Uncharted 3, like 95% of it <laughs> is what O'Connell's wearing. Like all the, the way down the scarf, the scarf, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Yep. So everything's there. Um you've got the idea of again, um Hamanaptra is this city that gets swallowed by the sand because of a curse, so you can't find it. Mm-hmm. Just like the Atlantis of the Sands. And even our Ardith Bay, he is a voice in Uncharted 3 as <laughs> the, you know, he is the head of a sect of people whose job was to keep uh, the Atlantis of the Sands away from the mainstream people so no one would go in and discover the horrors that await them. So it's like when I was playing that, when I was playing Uncharted 3, I'm like, you know what? This is the mummy without a mummy. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) When Mm -hmm. when you seriously go back to this, though, this is no different than what the Secret of Monkey Island and Pirates of the Caribbean ended up doing to each other. Mm -hmm. Like you have two things with similar subject matter. One thing references the other. Then the other one references the other. And then you've got cross-reference and imagination, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now we don't even know who who started what. Yeah. In this case, Mm -hmm. though. We totally know that somebody watched The Mummy and then made Uncharted. Yeah, because I mean, even like, so one of the things that Uncharted 3 that was like the most thing that that really, really bugged me, which is a pun, you'll see, is that the spiders make no fucking sense in that game. They don't. There's nothing that makes sense about them. They're just kind of like, oh, here's here's in this like underground thing in the beginning, we see one of the spiders in like a glass jar. And then every time the spiders need to be there, these giant flesh-eating spiders, they're just there. And... How do you repel the giant flesh-eating spiders, one might say? Well, there are two ways they do it in the video game. One is with a torch. The other is with a shotgun. And when you see the scarabs in this, which are going around flesh-eating, there are two ways they get the scarabs to leave them alone. One is with a torch, and the other, you guessed it, is with a shotgun. So I just think, yeah, Uncharted 3 is the mummy. And, (laughs) And we're all fine with it. As we should be, because it's a great game. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really have mm-hmm. any any major gripes with that because yeah. I mean, it's still an original story. Just because mm-hmm. it influenced by it was influenced a lot by this doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I do think is kind of a bad thing here, though, is that the hum or the uh, the the idea of the Medjai, right? Mm-hmm. Like the original ancestors of the bodyguards of the Pharaoh, them protecting the the, the lost city, quote unquote. Mm-hmm really starts to fall apart when you start to think about the other things that are going on in the film. Okay. Mm-hmm. The question I have is that the, the leader of like the, the museum and like the, the hub of all this Egyptian culture in the area where Evie's working out of the Medjai managed to infiltrate that leadership structure. And what I'm assuming is at least some other part of the local government right mm-hmm. how can you manage to get influence into these upper pillars of society 
and still not manage to get anything done to tell people to stop fucking around trying to find this place. Yes. That's that. That's what I don't understand too is because also apparently the best place information about this place is the museum that Evie works at. So why the fuck are you giving <laughs> someone as smart as Evie literal access to all of the things to find this forbidden hidden city? Why not say, you know what, you know, what's the best thing you do with evidence to the city that we don't want anyone to find. We fucking destroy it. So no one can find it. Or we don't put it in a place where people who can read them can find them. We stick them somewhere else where no one's ever going to see them. And that would be the smart thing to do. But yeah. apparently no one in this government, in this secret organization that's existed for thousands of years, was thinking about that. No, no. no. But mm -hmm. I mean, to their to their credit, though, it was one piece of like one artifact that just happened to get traded throughout the years that winds mm -hmm. up in a poker game that Jonathan then steals off of Rick, right? Rick mm -hmm. probably found it while they were there or whatever. Yep. Uh, that's probably the main reason. It's like, yeah, they tried to keep as much as they possibly could from Evie and watched over her. And then this one piece arrives and you're like, ah, oh, shit, we can't hide it from her anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's, that's something I've always wondered about this movie. It's like, how, how can you manage to get that kind of influence and then, kind of flaunt it you know because later mm -hmm. on when they show this part we're like it's like yeah the, the mummy's out and we're trying to show this infrastructure that we have and they're like all matter of fact like, like yeah we've killed each other a lot but really we could have just probably passed legislation and we yep. would have been fine we've been okay <laughs> <laughs> just make it illegal to go to this area and we we put guards there or something that would make sense but alas no yeah mm -hmm. well long story short people finally do get to the mummy they start stealing artifacts. Shit goes bad. Yeah. We meet this guy named Benny. Who's, oh, who's Benny. Yeah, he's got all the horses, but he's on the wrong side of the river. Mm -hmm. Yeah, played by uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, who is a longtime collaborator here with Stephen Summers, which mm -hmm. I'm fine with seeing more Kevin J. O'Connor, yeah, frankly. He, he plays the part that he played very well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And honestly, Kevin Joe Connor, if somehow you listen to this or someone you know is listening to this, we'd mm -hmm. love to talk to you. Yeah. But ultimately, they do finally lead people back to Hominoptera because mm -hmm. there's money involved. Of course. And this is another question, Joe, that I have about this film. Mm -hmm. How is it possible that Egyptian books exist when books didn't exist until the Romans created them? Well, if you go deep enough in the pyramids and you go really, really far down, you'll actually find on the walls of them hieroglyphs of the Baghdad, Baghdad battery and these old light bulbs and what is definitely an Apache helicopter. So clearly the answer as to why they had books before books were around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> aliens <laughs> for those that aren't watching the video <laughs> joe literally just put his his hair up in the, <laughs> the, the in, in the most perfect ancient aliens way he possibly could uh, yeah mm -hmm. honestly joe the, the fact that you just pulled off a makeshift Giorgio Sufalos <laughs> is, is very very impressive which i can't do anymore my hair is Acting. gone Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, but I, my 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 reasoning is because Book of the Dead sounds more catchy and fun than Scroll of the Dead or yeah. Tablet of the Dead, 
the parchment or, of the dead or on the side of the wall of the dead yeah. um, because that's where they probably would have written this stuff anyway so yeah uh it just <laughs> what is that over there that is the taupe colored wall of the dead we must read from it no we should... must no. not read from the wall <laughs> the damned text <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, oh. it, it, but and that's the driving force of mm -hmm. pretty much like halfway through the film and the rest of the way is like, yeah, Evie reads from the book that shouldn't exist. Should not, yeah. Mm -hmm. And here comes the shitstorm, which honestly, here here's something I thought was cool about the film. Industrial Light and Magic was behind the effects that you see in this movie, mm -hmm. which is what I think may separate it from other action movies of this era, or like right around this time. We're not going to talk about the second one, just the first one. Nope, now. just first one. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they did something really cool with the effects, though. When you see, like, the swarms of the locusts or, mm -hmm. you know, any of the sandstorms and stuff like that, what was really cool about the movie is that whenever they did these, like, big shots of these effects happening, when they were far away, yeah, they're digitized CGI, mm -hmm. and they do their best they can with them. But when they move in on the shots, like when you're seeing the actual people, I feel bad for the actors they're actually covered in bugs. They're covered in mm -hmm. rats and mice and they're getting like sandblasted at them. Like they, they actually went through some pretty rough shit filming this movie because mm -hmm. <laughs> they, they were out there in the Saharan desert, parts of Morocco and like people are getting bit by snakes and like scorpions and mm -hmm. shit. They're getting dehydrated. Yeah. Well, again, this Dedication. is, this is a time before Sir Ian McKellen was crying in front of a green screen because mm. you couldn't just fill it all in later. You couldn't shoot some parts separately, let, um, let our technicians handle it later, and it'll look right in the end like we do now. It was, here's the deal. It can fill in the gaps that we can't fully do because like, it would just be too big. It's, it's, it's a scale we can't do without building miniatures. And this is going to be the next step because it will be eventually better than miniatures in some people's opinion. So we have to still do something interacting with the actors because like the, the technology isn't there yet. So as soon as you get really close, if you were to rely on the green screen and rely on the tech, it would not look as good as it did in this movie for the time because this is one thing with the movie that certainly does not hold up to the modern day. Um, some scenes do, some things do well, like the locust swarms and anything that is involving sand honestly looks great. Um, yeah. The opening scene where uh, the opening effect scene, which even oh. that is more practical than I think special when like the face in the sand, the face rises out of the sand and yeah. scares the crap out of uh, Brendan Fraser. Um, that looked, that looked awesome. That looked really good. The big face in the sand, uh, going after the airplane with, with, by the way, my favorite character in this whole goddamn movie, Winston Havelock. <laughs> Phenomenal. Like old world war one British pilot who is still stationed in the area. Well, after the war is over, oh, yeah. all of his yeah. friends have died in the war and he's mad that he's still alive and the adventure is gone. And, the scenes that you see him, one, him drunk first, yeah. and he's walking through like a party in a very bougie, posh place. He walks through a fountain and he goes, oh, some boy seems to have spilled his drink. And he walks, he just keeps going through. <laughs> and then the whole, when they have to get him because they need an airplane and he comes up, he's like, so 
What does your little problem have to do with his majesty's royal air service? Nothing. <laughs> Is it <Yeah>. dangerous? <laughs> he just gets really excited that it's going to be bad. And they're like, yeah. Uh, well, everyone else we've run into so far has died, so why not you? Yeah. <laughs> like, just everything about Winston's great. But anyway, the CGI for that scene of the giant sandstorm and Imhotep's face being in the sandstorm, that works for this time. Like, I watched this movie within the past 24 hours. That still doesn't look bad. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The stuff it, that doesn't hold up is a lot of, like, the, like, statues that we can see, like, transition from the ancient time to the modern. Um, yeah. That doesn't look great. Like the uh, um, a spirit flying, like floating over things, does not look great. Um, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, but there, there's points where it looks, it looks okay. There are parts mm-hmm. where it doesn't. I mean, the thing is, like it, we were having this discussion about one that we would have a completely different discussion about two. Right? Mm-hmm. They're just. I feel like the budgets were just totally different. Yeah. But. But in one, like when you have the close-ups of Imhotep and his like juicy mummy form, mm-hmm. they don't look great when it's like modern, like in, in the daylight, right? No. When it's when it's in the pyramids and he's kind of shouting at people and doing his whole Terminator thing, they look pretty good there. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the most part. Yeah, but, especially. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and again, like you when you when you watch it now and you look at those, like when you look at a lot of these CGI scenes, you can see you, like. For someone, again, who watched it in 99 and sees it now and understands, like, obviously modern cinema and what it can pull off, like, you should pretty much come away with, you know what? For 99, that's not bad at all. <laughs> it really it really wasn't. And again, like, even the things that don't hold up that do look bad, like, honestly, it's better than when George Lucas re-released Star Wars. Oh, God. When he yeah, let's... knew the new technology that didn't have back in the 70s. Uh, with rocks to hide R2-D2 because rock technology mm. was not there back then. They were able to make it work hey, in the 90s. Rocks um, have come a long way in 30 years, okay? Huge just, way in 30 years. Yeah, and just remember we're, that. We're going to leave um, Jabba's band out of this and the fact that we got new characters that we never asked for and never wanted. But um, compared to that, like, not bad. Um, and like we said, a lot of it, when you have like, especially like in the darker scenes, it does work and it works very well. Um, so when you, when you go to watch this movie, if you have never seen it before, no, not all of it's going to look good. Some of it will be downright laughable if you're expecting really great CGI, but around those few scenes that are like that, just take it for a grain of salt that this is early CGI. I, and even compared to further stuff out in the series, like I'm sorry, Scorpion King, that stuff is horrendous. Like even like looking back at it now, it's like, mm. yeah, but mm. we started this conversation off with universal mm-hmm. saying we don't want to spend a lot of money. And, and, and I feel like that that's going to be applied to any made for, you know, straight to DVD mm-hmm. films. <laughs> but in this one though, I would say that the CGI overall is inconsistent at, you know, yeah. overall, like we're, we're talking about how they're trying to perfect something mm-hmm. that is, I wouldn't say it's in its infancy, but it is taking its first steps, I guess. Yep. So, yeah, maybe it's maybe a toddler. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It still falls over every now and again, but mm-hmm. it's still trying to walk most of yeah. the time. It still pisses itself. But hey, you know what? You understand yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel I feel you on that struggle. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's where it is. I think that mm-hmm. this movie is at a point where industrial light and magic is still doing really good work. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's just parts where it's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, they'll probably never be able to truly perfect 
some of the mm-hmm. things in this that don't quite work. But yeah, I would say most of the time it doesn't make it laughable. Scorpion King. Yeah. Scorpion. So mm-hmm. yeah, but here's the thing that I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like at any point in this movie that the acting didn't work or that the acting was, you know, over the top? Like wh- where do you think that, that the, the overall acting performances as a whole kind of live within this one? You know, this is definitely one where I don't feel like any of it was over the top. Uh, there may be, when we say there are some memeable scenes, it lives in those smidgen small areas of the movie. Um, like the scene that I was just talking about liking so much was like the, the sandstorm with Imhotep in it. Oh, when yeah, yeah. you see Vaslu actually, because he's controlling the sand, so you see what he's doing with his body. And he really gives it 110% oh, yeah, with his motions to his body. And then it's like, okay, that was a little too much. But considering how well he does with everything else, like you overlook that. Like it's not not horrible. So to me, like looking back on this, like I don't know. Like it's like the movie is definitely a bit of a timepiece as far as like how the characters develop and the story that's being told. But like, there's never a point where like, you know what? I know it's a small role, but we could have done better than that. Yeah. <laughs> and definitely not with even the larger roles in the movie. Uh, you look at like the three Americans in this, other than of course, Rick O'Connell's American, but like you look at the three Americans who are also like trying to get rich by, you know, raiding things in ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, those are like they're very much tertiary characters. They they and even top of that, they're playing very heavy American stereotypes. Yeah. You've got like the pseudo intellectual. Um, you've got like the straight up like Texan who wants bourbon with a shot of a shot of bourbon and a chaser of bourbon and a a bourbon like you know follow up drink to all of that. And then you've got a guy who kind of looks like he's a you know East Coast gangster. Oh and, yeah. yeah, Corey Johnson. Corey, yeah, uh, he he was mm-hmm. he was actually in uh, in Doctor Who. Yeah, if you, if you remember, mm-hmm. yeah, in that, yeah, in that... he was our American collector. Yeah, in, 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 in the season, Dalek yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he like even those small roles, which also, by the way, counting on them, the scene where the boat's on fire and they're like going, like they're like straight up yeehawing and firing mm-hmm. away on their yep. shooters, and yep. then you get Jonathan walks over, sees them, and just goes. <laughs> Americans. Yeah. Um, Americans. I think until you have made a British person say Americans, you haven't truly lived. And this <laughs> is something I have had the luxury of doing in my life. Because when I was in South America and I was whitewater rafting and we would hit like the hardest rapids and I would like be elated, be like, yeah, we made it over. This is awesome. This is fantastic. British friend Mitch, who I made along on that trip, was just in the back there, like just happy to get along. Just says, just goes, Americans always yeah. trying to get hurt. <laughs> How uncivilized! So I did it. I made someone say America. I made an English person say Americans to me. So that's really great. <laughs> but even that, like, okay, so look at those three. They're supposed to be stereotypes. Yeah. And yeah. at no point, even with them, are you thinking, you know what? That's annoying. <laughs> like, obviously, <laughs> like this isn't how Americans are. You don't feel like either like uppity about the whole thing or not maybe not uppity because that, that belittles when people get upset over poor yeah. 
poor portrayals. I, I, but you, yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's not as offensive. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not yes. intentionally offensive. You exactly. Know? That, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and, I, and I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even like other smaller roles in this movie, like the Egyptologist who is in that, um, they get, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm spacing on the actor's name who plays Egyptologist. Um, but he, Oh man, I knew this. I knew this mm-hmm. at one point in time. Yeah. It's killer. Um, it'll come to me later, but until then, like even yeah. him, like he does a really good job doing a couple things. One, like, kind of hating him because he does he makes that terrible line when they're looking through the ruins and evie's like leading o'connell and her brother and he makes the comment "Ugh, like they're being led by a woman don't worry about them uh what's what what would have to worry about with her like so like okay so this guy's like fucking full of himself we don't like him so uh, he jonathan hyde yes jonathan hyde there we go from from jumanji yeah yes perfect so we get a woman no yeah, what does a woman know? So it's like, okay, so this guy is full of himself. He yeah. is smart because we do see that he's smart because, one, he knows that Evie is not supposed to read from the book and she kind of just goes for it anyway because she's not because she's like not as smart as him, but she is much more excitable than, than he is. So, I think he's afraid of how smart she is. Yeah. You know, and mm-hmm. as you mentioned before earlier, how there's, mm-hmm. there's things that kind of take away from her power as a character. Yep. I, I, I truly do believe that even when she gives herself up to Imhotep, mm-hmm. that, that took, that took some brass balls. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For her to just go, I know exactly what this has to happen here. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do it. Like yep. if anything, I think that just proves how in control she is. Mm-hmm. Like, she, like she puts herself in danger for everybody else and goes, all right, you fucks figure this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, and, Again, like this is like one of those things, like the like again, like even the terrible acting trope of like stage performing, and say you know there are no small roles in a play, small roles in a play, and that's what this movie honestly feels like. All yeah. the tertiary characters feel like they're uh, well fleshed out enough that all their stories are believable. Anything that is meant to be some sort of caricature about them is not like completely embellished. It's no. not it's not so over the top that you begin to hate them. It's like, nope, this is their trope, and they're just doing the trope well. That's it, plain and simple. And, like, and again, it goes like to the Americans, to the uh, Egyptian captors who have Rick in the, uh, one of the early parts of the movie. Again, small parts for them, but they're not ridiculous at their parts. They're not, while they have some things that are you know not great characters, you're also not supposed to like them. You're not supposed to fall in love with them. They're supposed to be kind of bad. So we have to do something that makes them bad. Um, they, they also represent that era of film too, mm-hmm. though. Yep. I, and I'm not saying that's a pass, but I'm, mm-hmm. it just makes, it does make sense to you. Like this, that's what you're presenting is this 1920s look at what this horror monster would have mm-hmm. appeared like in it. And I think, I think they, they nailed that part. I'm, I'm yeah. guessing, I'm guessing that's where a lot of this money went to. Mm-hmm. Obviously CGI is a big part of it, but then, the set pieces, you know, putting all this stuff together. And when you have like good, reliable acting on top of it, I'm not saying it's Academy Award winning by any means, mm-hmm. you know, just like our, just like our, our friend did here in the beginning, our long deceased critic, Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it it's, it's delivered well. It works the way it needs to. And frankly, I think that's all you can really ask for in an yeah. action movie. Mm-hmm. Now, we do need to be careful if we ever do make another one because we almost killed Brendan Fraser in this. We did. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for those of you that aren't aware of that, yeah, when he's in the gallows, he's actually dying, and they kept the shot, and hopefully uh, they don't ever do that to him again. No, good Lord. Like, when you find out that that's one, like, even doing that to a stunt person, like, that seems a bit much. <laughs> that there wasn't something that at least, like, I, I feel like we, you could have pulled that off with camera angles to make it safer. It's like um, Universal didn't learn their lesson when they almost killed Michael J. Fox. Now yeah. they're trying to kill Brendan Fraser. It's like, stop oh. hanging people. People, like, <laughs> don't do it. Like, what are we thinking? Oh, good Lord. It was the 20th century people. Like, come on. So, oh, yeah. And, oh, my gosh, even that scene, like, the whole, like, oh, look, he didn't break his neck. Like, was that also the reactor of, like, was the reaction of the director? Like, oh, you know what? He didn't keep, they didn't break his neck. Let's keep it. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> Stephen Summers is, like, going, wait, oh. was that a line we wrote? Or did, no. No. no his, his neck didn't almost didn't just break. break. All oh. right, guys. Keep Let's write this one. Yep. yep. Just mm-hmm. keep it. Yep. Just keep it. Yep. Keep yep. it. We're, yep. Keep it going. Yep. We're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ultimately mm-hmm. with this film, mm-hmm. it's it's one of those films that I won't even call a guilty pleasure because I don't think that's the right way to describe it. No. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a film that I don't think you're ever going to look at and go, I'm going to cringe at moments in this movie. No. Maybe, maybe you don't care for the CGI, which we kind of mm-hmm. covered. But in a lot of movies that are kind of set in this like horror genre mm-hmm. or even action adventure adjacent, normally there's a scene in an action movie that makes you truly cringe. Oh God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes it's like using two guns to fire at like 40 people and hitting all of them. Mm-hmm. Other times it's like grabbing a horse from the wrong side and somehow flipping yourself over on top of it. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in this movie. No. And, and so mm-hmm. I, I truly think that it's not a guilty pleasure movie. It's just a mm-hmm. really really solid action film uh, that just happens to revive an, an old, you know, horror mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And like a lot of like Warner brothers is doing this a lot where they will actually put a disclaimer in front of an older movie saying, Hey, while we do not condone like the language that was used in the time, we also are not going to change it because we feel like it would take away from how far we've come and it would diminish like what was done in the movie. We're just going to let you know that, Hey, we no longer support like the views and the lines that are said in this movie or how Disney movies will just completely edit the older stuff out and put different things in. Yeah. When you look at this movie, it doesn't have a lot of that where you have to apologize for it, or it is going to be so bad that you're going to cringe at it. Like, Oh God, you can tell this thing was made in the nineties by the way because of that line or because of this scene. Um, the only way you're going to do that, like you said, or mostly you're going to do that was from, like you said, is through the CGI. It's like, oh, okay. But there's no like dead, terrible scene that's like, oh God, here we go again. This is an old yeah. movie and you can tell. Um, yeah. You get that in small enough doses where you're not annoyed by it, where it's like, oh yeah, it is. I get, you know, it's annoying that, that Evie had to be saved. But again, like, Evie also let herself get captured because it actually saved everyone else by her doing that. And she knew that was what she had to do or she could have resisted that been taken against her will and everything. So even though like part of the trope is fulfilled, like we said, it doesn't do it in the very annoying old manner where you're like, you're, you're sticking up your nose at it or you're sick of seeing it. So this is one of those cases where, this movie is definitely, you know, a timepiece, but it's a timepiece that's not embarrassing. It's not, you're looking back at your photos from the 90s. This isn't the one 
in the neon colored shapes all over your shirts picture. <laughs> um, this is not the every portion of your shirt is a different color silk button up picture. Mm. This is not your yeah. bowl cut. This is just, you look at a picture like, you know what? I look younger there. That's what this is. Yeah. Or you can look back at it and go, I was younger and then got made fun of incessantly for several weeks because I invited two girls to go watch this with me when I was 13. <laughs> and with that, oh. we thank you for listening to digital dissection. As always, we appreciate all the dissection crew does for us week after week. Your support does go an incredibly long way. And if you happen upon this show by accident, which surprisingly many of you do, I mean, Joe, we did the math. I think only about 15% of the people that are subscribed to this show, like are comprised of the overall views. Like that's what yeah. really doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. No. So that must mean a lot of you are literally walking with your phones, tripping, falling, and for some miracle are hitting play on our podcast. I assume that's what's happening. So yeah. if you've done that today and like, by Jove, these boys have found out exactly how I've stumbled upon the internet radio show, then please hit subscribe. Yes. Mm -hmm. And hey, we also like hearing from you. So feel free to message us over at digital dissection podcast at gmail.com. We do read that inbox and very few things end up in that spam filter. So, hey, we welcome your ideas for future shows. And honestly, if you want to talk to us about your favorite mummy-based properties and movies, we'd love to talk about that, too. So anything you'd like to discuss, send it on over. And Joe, until next time, I'll, I, th I think that it's too self-serving to say what we normally say. Yeah. But I don't have anything else to say. No. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we've officially ran out of money this time. We did. The budget's gone. Um, so we will say until next time, keep on dissecting. And if it's dangerous, you should probably do it. <laughs>